Hello and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 711. And we're recording this on December the 19th, 2022. It's going to be about New Year's resolutions, top 10 riders, all kinds of good stuff like that for the off season. And to help me decide who is the best riders or what order they should be in is Richard Jout. Rich, how are things in the UK this evening? Very good. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, a bit wet and windy here, I'm afraid, but uh, it is December. We've actually had loads of snow in the last week or so, but it's all gone now, unfortunately, just before Christmas. But never mind. We are going to get the white Christmas. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, Don't tell my wife. She'll be jealous. We haven't had a white Christmas here for about 10, 12 years. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so it's it's supposed to come in on Thursday or Friday with wind and snow, and they're saying it could be blizzard-like conditions here. Perfect timing. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Nothing better than that. So, all right, Rich, let's talk about some news that there is here. There's a little bit on the world superbike front so we'll just quickly go there uh confirmed daniel petrucci will ride in world superbike so he's going there he's not going to be back in uh the u.s and moto america i personally sad to see him go back to world superbike i thought he added something to the paddock in moto america but you know what he was not happy here no, and as yet, no replacement for him on the... No, is it, it's the Warhorse HSBK Racing Ducati. It was a bit of a mouthful, that, isn't it? But, uh, yeah, no announcement on who's going to replace Petrucci. I think we might have mentioned that he was World Superbike bound in the last show, actually, but he's confirmed that the Barney Racing Ducati squad, which is kind of... It's not... I don't think it would be quite correct to call it semi-works. It's probably private, but it's quite a high-level private team. Let's put it that way. So he's going to be in the mix. I mean, he's a good rider, isn't he, Petrucci? And he would certainly be much more comfortable on the World Superbike calendar-type tracks. A couple of other bits of World Superbike news that we just quickly wanted to touch on, kind of in follow-up to a bit of speculation last time out, and that is to say that Brad Ray is now definitely confirmed in World Superbike. He's going to be racing for, this is the team I couldn't remember last time, it's called the Moto X Racing Yamaha team. So he stays on an R1, having won the BSB Championship on an R1 this year. However, he will, as I thought, only be contesting the European rounds next year. Now, I'm not entirely sure, Jim, quite why that is, but I actually think that that, is likely to play into his favour, rather, because he can just concentrate on a, let's say, a what, a half season in terms of the races he'll actually go to. And hopefully he'll be able to really sort of gel with the bike, show what he can do, and then there's likely to be a bit of a shuffle in the other Yamaha teams for 2024, particularly if the long-awaited Razgatioglu to MotoGP thing happens. We don't know if that's going to happen, but if it does, and Bradley Ray has impressed in his kind of condensed season next year, then you know that might put him in a very good position to pick up one of the, let's say, slightly higher up the grid rides. But I think the Moto X Racing Yamaha team is is pretty good, so it's a good place for him to have landed. Um, the other thing, just to mention as well, is that we were wondering what was going to happen to Taran McKenzie, who was last year's British Superbike champion. He's actually going to move across to the World Super Sport Championship with, interestingly, the return of the Honda CBR 600, which hasn't been in World Super Sport 
for some years now. So that will be Honda coming back makes that six manufacturers now in World Supersport. So again, Rude Health that series is in. So he's going to be in the uh, the MIE Honda Racing team. He'll have uh, a teammate called Adam Norodin, who you might recall was in Moto Three, I think, briefly. Yeah, I think he was or two ago. You might remember that name. I think he's a Malaysian. Um, so again, I think this is a quite a canny move for Haslam. I don't know. Obviously, we hear about these riders that earn a reasonably good living in BSB, particularly the guys that are up the front, having to move across and bring budget with them. So I don't know, obviously, what the details of that deal are. But again, I think he can probably ply his trade pretty effectively on that bike. And they've got uh, Hafish Siren still on the World Superbike Honda in that MIE team. So if again, if Mackenzie has a good year on the Supersport bike, you know, might end up back in on, on a thousand CC bike again. So again, I think it's probably a bit of a tactical move that, um, and it's expectations might be a little bit lower given that this is a, a, a brand that's returning to the series. And so there will be, I guess, a thought that they'll take a little bit of time to find their feet as will he. So I think that's a pretty canny move by Taz McKenzie. Yep. I, I can't disagree. You know, this this all of what Honda's doing confuses me slightly. Okay. So mm-hmm. you had a again, their their auto division isn't the same as their bike division. The two are I don't want to say wholly separate entities. There is only one Honda, but mm-hmm. they decided, hey, we're leaving F1. We're gonna work on electric cars because we want to be carbon neutral. So they said, okay, we're going. Fine. Red Bull decided that they would take those engines they had and basically build a engine team, engineering team, to to keep them running, rebuild them, develop them where they could, and whatnot. Now, then Red Bull started talking. Red Bull, obviously one of world's drivers, world constructors and world drivers title with mm-hmm. Max Verstappen for two years on the trot. They started talking to Porsche as an engine supplier for their team because, you know, the rumor of Audi and Porsche coming back to F1, which is true. It's not an F1 podcast. I know people. I'm going somewhere with this. (laughs) Then Honda said, yeah, yeah, I think we're going to stay. Keep the badge on the car. Yeah, Yeah, we've got an HRC badge on the car, which never it was always an HRC badge. And then it became a Honda badge. Which that's wholeheartedly different between the two, mm. right? So okay, and then you know Honda's built a. This is where the motorcycle part of it is. They built a CBR one thousand RR R. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you 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 put a lot of effort into building a world superbike that should be a whole lot better than it was previously. And you're bringing back the 600 RR to go to World Supersport. You you're doing all of this, and yet is this why the Honda HRC Revsol HRC MotoGP bike is so bad? Because they took the engineers away to do the 1000 and to kind of fluff the 600. Mm, Jim, I think this is a can of worms that is a show all on its own, uh, potentially, isn't it? I mean, it is. I know. I didn't mean to do this. I didn't want to hijack what we were doing, but this just leads into it so well that I have to say something about it now. I mean, we can shelve it. I don't care, but it's 
I don't I don't get where they are with their with their thinking. Well, I would say to use one of my favorite words, they from the outside they appear to be in a bit of a muddle and you know a, a lack of thought or strategy in terms of what they're doing and where they're very you know uh, considerable resources are spent i mean we know that they're in a and they've been for some time now in a world of hurt in moto gp which we'll get to shortly <laughs> um they've not exactly been having a splendid time in world superbike since they really upped the effort and made that a full-on hrc uh, effort but they have shown good signs of progress this year and i think with the super concessions that have come in in the thousand cc category they will make further progress next year i'm quite sure and obviously they've got vierge and Lekoona with a year's experience under their belt on the World Superbike and the Pirelli tyres as well. Now, so all of these things probably add up to Honda having a better year next year, although, uh, and they really do need to have a better year, <laughs> has to be said. I think the reintroduction of the 600 is a purely kind of strategic marketing thing because I think, you know, Southeast Asia is such a huge market for the middle-sized bikes. Uh, and with the way Scott Smart and the team in World Superbike, World Supersport have rewritten that, medium class rules set but you know it's really brought in a lot of manufacturers so you've got the ducati you've got triumph you've got the yamaha etc etc so honda i think were probably forced to come back or they were going to miss a big meal ticket there so i guess that's really why uh, i'm just pleased to see tara mckenzie in on the world stage at long last because you know we've had this debate endlessly about having won the bsb championship in 2021 should you know really it would have been nice to have seen him gone up straight away that the chance wasn't there or he didn't have the budget to go and make that happen. So at least he's got a chance now. And I, I say, I think it's a quite a canny move to do what he's done. I think I could see him up to the World Superbike itself in that team after a year or two, if things go reasonably well. So yeah, good news, I think, for both Brad Ray and Taz McKenzie there. Um, just the last thing, Taz McKenzie obviously is vacating the Yamaha or the McCams Yamaha team in British Superbikes. So Tim Neve, uh, who has been running in that team, but in the Stock 1000 Championship, he basically just gets promoted up to that team to replace McKenzie. So he'll partner Jason O'Halloran in the McCams Yamaha BSB team next year. So that's kind of the news, uh, I think, Jim. I don't think there's anything particularly MotoGP-ish. There was a World Superbike test that happened, I think, at Hareth last week. Um, I haven't really looked into too much detail of what happened there. I know the rookies were actually had Gardner out for the first time on the Yamaha. Uh, I think Gerloff was out on the BMW for the first time, having switched across from the Yamaha. So there's a few things to catch up on there, and perhaps we'll do that next time out. Yep, we can do that. We can kind of wrap it up there and go there. So let's get to what we were here to talk about. So Rich and I decided I'm not a big fan of season reviews because it's hard to it's hard to review the whole season we already did that seasons are long enough as it yeah. is and Too now you sort of yeah. right you're forgetting what happened in Qatar uh you know and before you get to here but i did think it would be an interesting exercise for us to look at the moto gp riders and for us to put them in order as to what we think is the best rider to not the worst rider but our top 10 right mm-hmm. and as a bonus you guys get rich's bottom 5 so we'll go there and we'll kind of tell you like why we why we put them where they are. So, Rich, do we want to go backwards or do we want to go forwards? I think we should go ten down to ten to one to one. Ten to one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Who starts? <laughs> build the tension. Okay. Like I <laughs> well, think we both know who's at the top of this list. It's not well, hard. I, I think we probably will be on the same page, metaphorically and literally. But uh, do you want me to go first because it was your yeah. idea, so you can you can have the casting okay. vote. So, uh, okay. So in my tenth place, I have Jorge Martin. 
Jorge Martin there. Okay. He finished ninth in the championship. So my notes on this is, or him, are that, uh, you know, he makes his 10th play down to, you know, his phenomenal raw speed. I mean, that guy is quick, possibly the quickest single lap rider out there currently. But although he's faster over a lap than almost anybody, he just is far too inconsistent in terms of his race finishes. So he had some real flashes of brilliance, which get him onto the top 10 for me. And this is obviously just purely subjective. People will disagree with our choices, I'm sure, and some of our rationale. And we will inevitably miss certain things or misinterpret certain things because, it's, as you say, it's a long season. There's a huge amount of content. Yep. It's hard to remember all of it without going back and watching everything again. And who has the time for that? So, yeah, Martin makes it into the top 10 just. Um, it was a toss-up for me between him and Miguel Oliveira, who had two wins this year. But Martin got there just purely down to some of the laps he pulled out. A lot of pole positions this year, but, you know, too often we saw the bike cartwheeling through the gravel. So if he can sort that part of his game out, and more more importantly, I think if the team can help to iron that out, you know, harness that raw speed, but just tame it a little bit, then, you know, he will be a contender. So, yeah, Jorge Martin, 10th for me. Okay, so 10th for me, Miguel Oliveira, on what you said. The strength of the two wins that he put in, uh, he did that early on and in difficult conditions, which he's sort of the master of. Yeah. But you also, by halfway through the season, KTM knew he was leaving. He wasn't going to be there. He was going other places. We know that's RNF now to mm-hmm. be on the satellite Aprilia. You and I both think he's going to do really well on that motorcycle. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he, to me, it, he's a 10th place guy. Just simply, he was at the victim of K- KTM not giving him anything new to try. You you could see that his bike wasn't changing where Bender's bike was changing. Different exhausts, different other small features that Bender had to yeah. be able to kind of go better towards the end of the year than what Oliveira did. So I have Oliveira in at 10. I just want to touch on something I think I've said on the podcast before. And I've, I've always kind of viewed what was the Red Bull KTM squad of the last couple of seasons with Binder and Oliveira's kind of Senna and Prost, where Binder is the Senna. He's just the guy that will just raw speed and he'll ride around the problems. You know, who can forget slick tires on a wet tramp at the Red Bull route, you know, or wet track. Whereas Oliveira is a much more kind of thoughtful guy, I think. He's more the professor. That's really where the Prost connection comes in for people with long memories. Uh, and I just think he wasn't able to ride around some of the deficiencies of the bike. And as you say, Jim, I think by mid-season, when it was clear he was off elsewhere, then inevitably and quite understandably, the development part started to dry up. But just never really quite had the consistency during his time on that KTM bike to really, you know, look like he was ever going to really challenge. But, he, you know, he's won a lot of races, though. I mean, what, four or five races now in total? Which at least four I, I four if not five yeah so you know he's a class act and as we say I, I think he's going to be sensational on the on the Aprilia next year so anyway okay yep so ninth place for me slightly contentiously perhaps is Mark Marquez okay that's fine my rationale being is that it's for me it's quite hard to judge Mark's performance a due to the arm problem which was obviously affecting him much worse than anybody was letting on in the first part of the season he then missed a bunch of races and then came back to a bike that either hadn't developed at all from the beginning of the season or had gone in the wrong direction i think compounded by the fact that most of the other bikes on the grid went rocketing forward in terms of development and honda we know are in a bit of a kind of uh 
black hole, uh, whatever the term is. I'm sure you can come up with a few choice words, Jim. But um, so for fuzzy, what's it? (laughs) Well, yeah, it's a bit hard to judge, you know, because I say you missed eight races, uh, but he came back strong towards the end. So, you know, there are signs that the old Marquez is back, but I don't think we can really be sure about that for a little while yet. So hence the ninth place. But, you know, he did turn in a few really strong rides. Did he win a race this year, Jim? I'm trying no, Honda went has gone three years without a win. Okay, but he came second, I think, at Phillip Island towards Correct. the end of the season, didn't he? So, which was a great ride by him. So, you know, hence the ninth place on the list for me this year. That's that's fair. I have Jorge Martin in at number nine mm-hmm. uh, because Martin has raw speed, but he can't seem to keep it together. He could quite possibly be the greatest qualifier to ever really put a leg over a motorcycle <laughs> yeah. i do not know how he goes faster than everybody else on that soft tire but he just simply does i think it's magical to watch he if as you said if we could he's a diamond in the rough and if we could just polish off that crystal and make it sparkle and become that diamond jorge would be a world champion of several times over in moto gp i'm convinced because he's just got that much talent. Um, so I, I have it here just because he, he can qualify, but you you can't finish the race where you start. That doesn't help you either. And he's had a he had a problem this year. We know that that bike is a very good bike. If you don't think the 2022 bike was good, I give you Bastianini on that bike, right? And Pramac yeah. had the same deal. They, they had 2022s. Yeah. Uh, so he could have done much better than he did but he either fell off or simply used up the tire or had some other troubles that nobody else seemed to have and i i will use this it's kind of like a days of thunder reference for those with long memories it's like well i don't know it's like hey jorge we just got to talk about setup i mean if, if you need some some more small trail here or some more rake or you know, a little longer swing arm or a little softer shock or more a little we'll just put a couple clicks of rebound in and we'll, we'll win races well, i don't mm. know what that means you got to teach me <laughs> you know, i kind of feel like he's that way like he's so raw that he just doesn't know he just goes and if you could teach him what all these things do to a motorcycle i'm sure he's far better at setup than what I, i'm letting on here people i i i get that i'm just trying to be analogous here but he's that it's just so raw and you're just waiting for it just to go over that that that, the preposis or whatever that is precipice precipice thank you (laughs) just he wants him to get over the precipice and he would be fantastic so i have him in at nine if you remember jim cast your mind back i'm assuming you sort of waded your way through most of it and it was a bit like running through treacle at times but the moto gp unlimited series featured martin and that pramac team around him quite a lot and it was it seems like quite a combustible kind of mm-hmm. relationship in there i mean he's obviously he's, he's young he's a latin so he's you know he's got a bit of fire in his belly and likes to sort of self-publicize himself whether that distracts him a little bit and i guess we shouldn't underplay the fact that for a big chunk of the season he was in locked in this battle with bastianini over who was going to get the works right so you know perhaps that had more of an effect on him than we realized because he did go sort of AWOL in the middle part of the season, although I heard somewhere that, you know, they went back to an earlier setting on the bike or perhaps some some earlier forks or whatever, um, and it kind of gave him confidence back again. So like a lot of riders, he had quite a strong end to the season and quite a poor middle part. So probably a few reasons for that. But yeah, let, let's see how he does next year. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Okay, number eight. For me, uh, in 12th place in the final standings, Luca Marini. Marini, okay. Um, Eric Jean by his teammate, but he is one of these guys that just quite quietly and stealthily goes about racking up a lot of points. And again, he's just another rider that's been unbelievably consistent and has improved a lot race by race. And I think it was only towards the end of this season that he actually didn't finish a race for the first time and God knows how many races. So he's, he's, you know, he's a pretty safe set of hands. Whether he's got that final, what, you know, percent or so to really break through, obviously we don't know. And there's obviously always this cloud hanging over him as to who his, you know, half-brother is and what effect that has, A, on him psychologically and B, on, you know, how he's in a position that he's in. But he's a good rider. Um, I think 2023 will be another good year for Marini, and particularly as I think VR46 are going to end up with Yamaha's from the following season, you know, he, he might be in a good position there. So, yeah, so eighth place for me for Marini. Okay. Uh, eighth place, I have Jack Miller. Okay. The Aussie. Uh, Miller won some races. He strung it together there for a little one bit. Race. He, sorry, he won a race. He has won races, I guess, in the past. Won a race this year, uh, which he needed. Again, inconsistency is where why Miller gets to be here. But I kind of put him where he was. Because I feel like if Miller hadn't done what he did at the end of the year to help Ben Yaya, it was he could have done better on his own. He was signed. I feel like he was hamstrung by the team orders that were running around. That there aren't team orders, but there are team orders at Ducati, kind of a thing. And he also <laughs> yeah. was hamstrung by I'm leaving the team at halfway through the season. We know Miller was going to go someplace else. And so he couldn't do his thing, but Miller's always been an up and down kind of guy. And I think he, this is just about where he is. He's a seven, eight, nine kind of guy in MotoGP. It, fierce. I love the guy as a personality and, you know, he can win that race when sort of the stars align, but that brought that consistency of winning all the time. Isn't really there. Mm. He's the master of, you know, the crash at the wrong moment, isn't he? Normally when he's out front. And he's also the victim of bad luck because, uh, what, in Australia... Um, oh, he got completely wiped out by... Who was it now? Um, he got taken off down at the corner. And they just named the corner after him, Miller Corner, and somebody wiped him out. I forget who it was now. Yeah, so uh, that's where we are there. Okay, Rich, who is at number seven for you? Number seven for me, slightly contentiously again, possibly, is Anaya Bastianini. Ooh, Bastianini, that far down. Now, yeah, he finished in third place in the championship, which was brilliant. Had four wins, including, if you cast your mind, all the way back, he won the opening round in Qatar, which I think caught all of us by surprise. Uh, you know, he's absolutely brilliant at managing a tyre. I don't really know perhaps why I've got him as low down as seventh, but it just kind of, again, this is a subjective thing really um is it a strength or a weakness his willingness to take risks and to ride so close to the edge i mean he was pushing his luck particularly with the ducati management towards the end of the season wasn't he in terms of some of the closeness of his attention around banya uh yeah uh, banyaya that's gonna be fun all next season isn't it yeah I, I mean my final note is big year in 2023 i mean he's obviously going to fancy his chances for the championship because arguably that is the best bike i mean okay that's another debate but so i mean he had a great year 
but for me, yeah, just perhaps was tinged by a little bit of recklessness here and there. Although he didn't knock anybody off, as I recall. So perhaps I'm being a bit unjust towards him. I think next year is when we really find out everything there is to find out about the guy. So, yeah, I'll stick with stick with my seventh place, even though I'm perhaps um, thinking I might have made a mistake there. But <laughs> over to you. Uh, you're not going to like this. Seven here is Alicia Spargo. Uh-huh. So, and the reason being that, one, I felt like he came out strong. He was consistent, but he made mental mistakes. I gave you Barcelona. Okay, uh-huh. I'm not holding him to it. But then it seemed like after that, everything sort of unraveled. They slowly kind of went backwards. He had that mess that was um, uh, Assen with the penalties and stuff for the Quattararo incident, which I don't know whether it really should have been or shouldn't have been a penalty that's there, but you should have never been in the position, I think, to begin with, given where you were in the championship standings. And then also it's partially the team. They The wheels came off the team too. And to me, a really good rider pulls the team back together again and refocuses them and puts them onto the direction that they were going. So for all those reasons, I put him down at seven. I have him in at six close so we're not too far away no uh let's see what did i put so i mean first comment i think was that i don't think many people saw either his performance or brilliant teams for that matter coming um as you say jim my notes are exactly the same as yours lost the plot at the end of the season particularly once they got to the flyaways um yeah, I just couldn't put that full season together. But there were some amazing highs. I mean, that first win in Argentina. That was great. Early in the season. That was spectacular. And some amazing lows. Barcelona being obviously the prime, prime example of that. But, I mean, he made a mistake. Anybody can make a mistake. But it was a pretty pretty crazy rotten one to make. Uh, my sort of final thought on all of this, and again, I don't think this is contentious at all. He needs a much stronger teammate. Yes. I'm just not absolutely convinced... I don't want to push my luck too much here. I mean, it would be wrong to call Alessia Spargo a journeyman, but he's not really ever been challenged in that team in terms of teammates or hasn't been for some time. And, you know, he's one of the older guys out there. So I don't know. That's probably why I have him sixth. You know, you have him a bit you know, lower in seventh. The teammate thing is a problem, but I suspect that might be resolved in 2024, as we'll come to. So... But yeah, I mean, it was a great season for Alicia Spargo. It kind of, and just a shame it went a little bit sour at the end. But as you say, that wasn't entirely down to him. No. I mean, the team kind of just, yeah, ran out of steam, I think, and just couldn't quite cope with the operational stress of the whole position that they were in. And that kind of manifested itself in reliability issues and kind of, yeah, logistical kind of grid issues, like with the wrong fuel map being left in, in Mategi and stuff like that. So not all Alicia's fault by any means. And, and Maverick did suffer some of this as well. I mean, he retired from a couple of races in the last third of the season. And, and retirements from mechanicals and stuff are quite rare, actually, aren't they, if you think about it in this day and age. So his shape-shifting bike almost high-sided me. It's Saxon Ring. Vinales, yes. anyway. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. Scary. So, yeah, so for me, sixth place, Alicia Spargo. Over to you for your sixth place, Jim. So sixth place for me, you'll like this one. I put Rins here at six. Mm-hmm. And I put Rins there because I, I tend to have, I tend to have judged these people against their teammate first, and how did they do against their teammate? And then I kind of looked at it like, well, how did you do against everybody else? 
to me, Renz blew Mir out of the water. Now I know Mir got hurt and I know Mir was struggling with the motorcycle, but Renz figured out how to win two races on a bike that probably had no business being anywhere near it winning. Right. Mm -hmm. So he did give Suzuki the great send off that they wanted, but I also think that Renz was able to do that because Renz rode so well. I mean, Renz probably had finally gotten healed up from his shoulder injury that happened in 2020. Yeah. And I, I think it finally had healed completely. I think he was finally back to being able to ride comfortably with the motorcycle. And I think you saw some of the brilliance that Renz has. You know, he's what, a year or two younger than Marquez. I think he's only turn, turning 25. It's hard to believe yeah. he's only 25. He, he's been around so long. You, you think that he's actually older. So for me, I thought that was like one of the best seasons that Renz had ever rode. Oh, I think hands down his best season, uh, certainly in the MotoGP class. Yeah. Um, I'll come to Renz, as you'll expect. That's fine. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, I knew that was going to be somewhere else in the list. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so moving on to my number five then. So I've got Marco Bezzecchi. In at five. Wow, Bezeki at five, all the way up there. Okay. Yeah, well, no, he he only finished fourteenth in the overall standings, but he was a rookie of the year. He had a maiden pole position in uh, in Thailand, and like a lot of riders, again, as I've said, a very strong end to the season, which bodes very well for twenty twenty three. And you know, we consistently saw him near the front, or certainly in that group behind the absolute front guys. If you say Quattro and Banyaya were the, sort of the, the two standout guys at the front of races consistently. Bezeki was normally in that kind of mix um, in the rest of the top 10. And for a rookie, I, I thought that was absolutely outstanding. I really did. So hence that, that because he's a rookie, I think he gets into this position on my list. And I think it, because it's all about promise. Right. Uh, you know, and what he can do with a year under his belt, same bike. In, well, in fact, no, it'd be because I think he was on the 2021 bike this year. So all of the non, well, I think both Pramax are on 2023 bikes and obviously the works team are on 2023 bikes. The other two satellite teams will be all be on 22 bikes. So, yeah, I've, again, expecting big things from Bezeki in 2023, provided we don't get into this whole difficult second album scenario where, you know, people just lose the plot a little bit. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. But for me, yeah, I think, yeah, I deserve a fifth place on my list. OK, so interestingly, I, I had two honorable mentions for my list and they were Bezeki and Marini because I didn't know what to ah. really do with them um, because I, I felt like Bezeki for all the reasons you listed and then Marini for all the consistency that he had. But I just didn't know where to put them because they had the older Ducatis. As, you know, the team, they were rookies. Mazzegui was a rookie. Marini's been there. And I just didn't know what to do. I just didn't know what to do with them. And so I left them as an honor, honorable mention. I think we shouldn't overlook the fact, unless I'm misremembering here, but is, was this the first year that VR46 were in the MotoGP class? I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah, because Rossi retired and then the team came to fruition. So, yes. Right. So, you know, I think we have to take into account what a great job that was by the team. I agree. As well, given their first year and the strength of the performances and holding all of that together, never mind running, you know, the bikes in the smaller categories and the massive amount of crash damage they had to deal with um, from the likes of Vietti. I mean, it must be said, actually, that Bezeki, I think, had the most number of crashes in the season and the, probably the biggest damage bill. But, you know, Rossi can afford it. Oh, yeah. He's um, got plenty of money. Um, 
uh, you know, and what what do we all say? You know, the fast rider that crashes a bit too much, a bit like Martin. You know, you can sort that out. You can't make a slow guy necessarily quick. So you know, it does bode well for Bazaki. So yeah, that that was my fifth. And over to you. So contentiously, and I know there's going to be arguments about this amongst the people. Mark Marquez goes in at number five for me. I I can see that. Yeah. So I put it there because one, the motorcycle was not that good. And his arm wasn't good at the beginning of the year. So for him to do what he did at the beginning of the year and be relatively close to podiums the way that it was, I thought kind of underlies how good the kid actually is. Then he takes a couple months off, gets his arm operated on again, and they rotate the bone 30 degrees to put it back in place. He comes back and you were wondering whether that was one too many surgeries in this, this is the last chance. Is it ever really going to work for him? And he crashed at Thailand and he was able to pick up the bike with his right arm. And you, you almost had to go, wow, I haven't seen that in a couple of years. Maybe the surgery really did work. And then we got to Australia. We saw the big, huge save on the right elbow, the front tucked completely. And you're like, the magic is never left him. For a guy who's gone through what he's gone through, to push that hard on that bike and save that again, to me, showed that the magic was still there. And it lead, led me to believe that, again, he also showed that he was one of the smartest riders on the grid in Australia, that him and Hattie Hernandez have their act together as a team because they realized the pace wasn't going to be fast enough that they could run the soft. And yeah, that's a gamble, but that's the part of the magic that you like about Marquez and the team. They do the unexpected. They're the guys that are the off thing, and you're going, there's no way he can make that work. And yeah. he did. Yeah. And just because you were able to look at that magic again. And it's not just me who misses Marquez. I'm a Marquez fan. I will admit that to anyone. But the fans, when he saved that bike – down I was a turn 10 or whatever that over Lukey Heights after you got over Lukey Heights yeah. they all just cheered because everybody wants to see that it's the magic that he has and I thought that he just he brought that back in the last few races I mean even with as bad as the bike was at Valencia he was pushing so hard to be where he was it was just incredible. And I, so I put it in as five, you know, the, the magic's still there for me. No, no. I mean, you're much more of a Mark Marquez fan than I am. I think that's fair to say. I mean, his talent and his determination are beyond any question. Uh, you know, he's proven that time and time again. I don't think we'll ever see him on the run of form that he had earlier in his MotoGP career because it's, you know, the sport's different now. Uh, and Honda are obviously behind the game in a lot of areas of the bike development. And we saw Mark, particularly in the first part of the season, what compounded by the arm problem, as you say, Jim, but just pushing crazily too far over the limit. I mean, who can forget that high side in Indonesia? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was that was horrifying. Um, we mustn't forget that he still has this diplopia problem ever present, you know, so will that temper his approach a little bit? Because whilst the bone it clearly looks to be and the arm looks to be quite strong now, as evidenced, as you say, by him picking the bike up out of gravel traps, what haven't, you know, once or twice... However, taking a bang to the head can easily set that eye problem off at any time. So, you know, he's always got that hanging over him. So who knows? Let's see. But the bigger problem for Mark is is the bike and the team, you know, and he has, when he had that kind of froth job 
you know, at the at the test in Valencia, you know, he was basically saying, this is not a bike problem, this is a personnel and a team problem. Uh, so there's a lot of soul searching and a lot of development work to be going on in, um, in Japan over the winter, I feel. But whether they can make the sort of ground up that's yeah. going to allow Mark to get higher up both of our lists next year. Well, we'll find out in due course, won't we? Yeah, but I think it's uh, I think Marquez has moved the goalpost in the sport, and I think he's at a point now where you know how you would you always said there for a while after Rossi had won his last title, you just don't count Rossi out. You count him at his own peril, at your own peril. Mm. Oh where yeah, Rossi sure. would always Rossi would always pull some magic out of the hat, right? Well, yeah. I think this is where him and the team will pull some magic out during the year where it's the wrong tire or heaven forbid it's a flag to flag race. Cause you know, Marquez is going to be the first one to try the opposite of whatever anybody else is going to do. Yeah. And you know, those could, in those moments where everyone else is being super cautious about what's on the track, Mark is going to go for it. And that's what you want to see. And it might be enough that he maybe lifts the title one more time. Mm. I, I don't know because these other guys are so fast right now. And without a motorcycle that's equal to e- a little less, maybe 10% less as good as a Ducati or as the Yamaha or whatever, maybe Mark can't get there. Maybe he just can't anymore. But, you know, it a physically I, fit um, Mark Marquez on a bike that's close will almost certainly win at Kota and will definitely win at the Saxon ring. So, you know, there's two wins in the bag. And they took Aragon off the, off the, off the, uh, off of the calendar. So we can't have that one. Yeah. But, oh, there's plenty of magic left in the draw to come out of that. I have absolutely no doubt. I just don't think we'll see the, and in many respects, I don't want to see, you know, like 10, 12, 13 wins in a season. Cause that's not particularly exciting for us. It, it's not going to happen. That I don't think I think everything is far too close for anybody yeah. to rip off seasons like that. It's yeah. There's a horde of Ducatis that are all good enough, and you've seen what Bastianini did on a satellite bike, and so I, you know, but it is it, just the fact that he's going to be at the front is going to add a whole new level of intensity that you know will change something along the way, right? And so I mustn't go on about Mark Marquez for too long, I suppose, but. I have to say that I went to the Silverstone round um, sort of against my better judgment because I don't think it's very good value for money. But it was an incredibly poor crowd attendance this year at Silverstone. And the fact that, you know, Rossi had disappeared, had retired at the end of the previous season, and Marquez was out because this was when he had his surgery, corrective surgery. Really, you know, the, the, the whole kind of Silverstone weekend was really flat. Uh, you know, so we do need Mark Marquez there because you know, he is wildly popular and he's very spectacular to watch out on track, particularly if you are track side. So, you know, yeah, the guy's got plenty left to give. Um, right. We're getting into the meaty end of the list now. So fourth place for me, Brad Binder. I put Binder in the exact same place. Why did you put him there? Right. So he finished sixth in the championship. Um, he's a, I just love him because he's a massive trier. He is a Sunday man through and through, and but he started to, again as the season went on. He both he and more, I think, pertinently KTM themselves started to figure their way around the bike again because they had a good 2020, was it or 2021? And they kind of lost their way a little bit along there somehow by having too much, as I understand it from what I've read and heard, 
thrown too many development parts at the bike. And then this year, they didn't throw anything at it at all until later on in the year. So I think they just sort of figured out the base setting on the bike a bit better. And now they've started to develop again. And again, we've seen this in the the, the last few rounds, particularly from Binder, not so much from Oliveira. Um, yeah, now all of that resulted in second place finishes in both Mategi and Valencia. So that strong end to the, to the season and the fact that you could always count on him to come through, even though he was typically qualifying quite badly, if that's the bit that they can sort out, then he's instantly a title contender on that bike next year. But they have to sort out Saturday. Uh, mine was just Sunday, man. Just the fact that he just goes at it with this determination is incredible. I love, I love that about him. And the fact that it seemed like after about halfway through the season, they got their head around the bike. And hopefully now they'll take, instead of having radical versions of their bike, they're going to kind of incrementally refine that motorcycle into a, into a consistent winner, consistent podium finisher, and hopefully maybe find it, get it to work in the, to where it can light up and run on a soft tire and, and qualify better. So if Bender's on the first two rows, wins are probably on the offer. Yeah, uh, he has sublime skill. We just don't get to see it often enough uh, because the coverage tends to focus on the front annoyingly and they don't have multi-screens on the typical coverage that I use anyway. Um, so it would be nice to see a bit more of Binder, but I think we will start to see more of him. And I don't think, just in terms of the team, I don't think we should underestimate the influence that, now is it Francisco Gradotti? Francesco Gradotti. He came in from Pramac, you know, worked for years with that team as a semi-works squad, let's be honest. Very, obviously, experienced in terms of how to manage the development of bikes and not to overcomplicate or overconfuse things, but just to work through things methodically. So I think his influence is really starting to be felt. And the other thing, just briefly on KTM, I can't wait for the first test next year because the Red Bull F1 aero guys' work will be seen, I believe, at that first test next year. So it'll be interesting to see what kind of aero packages they come up with. I mean, again, Genie's out of the bottle. I don't like all the aero, but it's here and you can't uninvent it. So now it's up to see if there's a kind of an Adrian Newey type figure that emerges. Um, I mean, you might say that um, Gigi Delinia has already sort of stolen that title perhaps but yeah so we'll see what Red Bull come up with for next year but again hopefully they don't put themselves in a, a spiral of overdevelopment and confusion but because um, we need to see Binder up the front yep so uh, that takes us to third place go ahead Rich who's at third uh, Banyaya is you in third place Banyaya third okay yes I put Bastianini uh, third so okay. So tell me why Ben Yaya is third. He's the world champ. He's the world champ. World champion. Uh, but on the best bike, I think you can just about say he had a very mixed first quarter of the season. Certainly. Now, to be fair to him, I remember that he was knocked off uh, in the first race in Qatar. I forget who by, but somebody took him out. Um, in fact, I think it might have been Jorge Martin actually <laughs> that knocked him off. Um. His season from kind of Assen onward onwards was like a freight train. And that, you know, he, as we remarked in the show, when we sort of covered his title win, and what was it, 92-point deficit or something, Jim, that he made uh, up? Some 91. Crazy number. Right. So, 
you know, arguably he deserves to be in first or second even. Um, that Ducati is a weapon. Um, and others, people didn't do what he did with it. So, I mean, you have to take that into account. But I can't sort of... Yes, there's the sport, but there's also the sports person. And I just can't separate some of the shenanigans that went on off track with him this year. And I think it just blighted things a little bit. And... He did fall off a couple of times under pressure when he shouldn't have fallen off. I mean, he he, he binned it at Le Mans when he shouldn't have done under pressure from Bastianini. And he did it at... Uh, oh, the Mategi one was an absolute clangor, if you remember. He went for that move on Quattro, which he didn't need to make, just completely. He did a, an Ayagira, actually, on that occasion, just threw it up there on a damp track and, yeah, just binned it. So a couple of little things like that, for me, just dent him back a wee bit. But, you know, world champion and, you know, a worthy champion because, you know, he really did have an absolutely stellar second half of the year. Yep. So Bastianini there in three for me um, because to me at points in the year, in the middle of the year, Bastianini lost the plot. He came on like gangbusters. He was doing great at the beginning of the year. He lost the plot in the middle of it. And then at the end, when the whole scenario of who was going to get on the factory Ducati kind of sorted itself out, woof, he was running like the devil again. Yeah. And, you know, Bastianini, I don't know what the 2023 20, Ducati is going to be like, but I'm assuming DG Delaney and company are going to keep it pretty close to the 2023 bike. To me, Bast- uh, Bastianini is the odds on, my odds on favorite to be world champion next year. He can save a tire. He's really good at that. And that's where I put him where he's there. He's just not, he's just that little bit behind the other two that I have in the top, but he's right there on the cusp of becoming a world champion. So that's, that's why he's there. So okay. I'll move to number two because mm-hmm. my number two is Ben Yaya. I put him there. And the reason I put him there was he overcame a 91 point deficit. Okay. On a better motorcycle, but still you have to perform to be able to crawl that in. Yes, luck played a part of it. Quattraro kind of lost the plot a little bit, and the Yamaha is not the bike that the Ducati is, but he also had to ride under immense amount of pressure. This is an Italian on an Italian bike. You are being looked at as the new the new heroine, hero, new hero, sorry, not heroine, hero, hero of it. You are going to be essentially almost a deity in Italy yeah. if you yeah. can accomplish this. And he did. So he did ride under that pressure, and that pressure got to him. He, the mistake on Quattraro that you mentioned to Motegi, which was a clanger, he had done no, no purpose there. But he fell off in qualifying at Sepang, and he didn't need to, right? So there are those little things in his thing that if you push on him, if you bang on him, he's going to crack. He doesn't have that mental capacity to keep it together. He doesn't have the mental capacity of Rossi to hold it together like Rossi could. Not like Marquez can and just be ruthless at any moment. And you have to have all those things. So he's just that little off for me. So Benyaya is number two. Yeah. Okay. Uh, You know, we can't, or I can't overlook the Dennis Rodman crash helmet, which I thought was really, really stupid. But I mean, that, that's nothing to do with his bike riding capability. I, I but... separated that. And should I? I don't know. I don't like what he did, but I'm looking at him as what he can do as a man on a bike. And 
That's how yeah. I look at it. No, no, and most of my sort of reasoning for having him one place behind where you have him is, as I say, just because, you know, he didn't have a very good start to the season, but, you know, he did have an unbelievable run towards the end there. So, okay, so you can probably guess who I've got in second place then. Rins is there. Alex Rins. Now, again, this is my unconscious bias. Uh, you know, because okay. I, I do like Rins. But he did win two races this year, which is more than a lot of other people uh, won. Uh, and that, in the context of a highly demoralised team mm-hmm. as well, uh, not to say they weren't trying, because they were, but that must have had played you know, a big part in the, the way that team kind of went through the final stages of its existence. Um, so it was a really bright finish for Suzuki, which I think was great for everybody. And I think seventh in the stand is it didn't really tell the full story of how good his 22 cam- campaign was because, you know, he got injured. If you remember, he broke his wrist when Nakagami took everybody out at the first corner in Barcelona. That sent Rins flying through the air and he busted his wrist. So that affected him for a race or two. Um, but he just had a, a really strong campaign. And unlike previous seasons where he was definitely guilty of just chucking it up the road, almost from overriding because of the way he rides, because he has this sort of, what I said before, this sort of almost like a classic 250 style, um, which is all about corner speed. In previous seasons, either he was just pushing too hard or the bike wasn't quite there, and he just was forever losing the front end, often from race winning or or podium challenging positions, I might add, but he was chucking it up the road, which is no good. So this year, that was all gone. Um, now, we thought the Suzuki, and I think they thought the Suzuki were going to be a lot better than they were at the beginning of the season. Because if you remember, they were looking formidable in the pre-season tests. They tried this extra horsepower, and it didn't appear to have been at the detriment of the bike's handling and stuff. They had a kind of a, a relatively underwhelming start to the season. But again, Rins just built and built and built. And although he was injured and missed a race or two, I just thought he had a really great season in the context of a team that was you know, going through the, the death motions. Plus my unconscious bias, he's in second place. So there yeah. we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he did. They, he did on did with the Suzuki. Did do a great season. Like I said, to me, it was the best season that Renz has had. And to be like you said, to do it in a team that was you know easily demoralized by the fact that they weren't going to be around next year, you know, evidenced by the fact that you know, hey, the, the day after Valencia, there is no Suzuki truck in the paddock at all, yeah, and then no. for them to have rallied like they did at the end of the year all you know good on them right most disheartening thing i read this week jim somebody asked a question what would happen to the bikes because of some strange tax rules in japan they have to crush them so it could be that they might keep one for a museum somewhere but you know perfectly serviceable bikes because let's be honest there's more than two bikes available (laughs) there's you know various chassis and yeah they can't keep them because of some tax rule in japan so they have to be scrapped, otherwise the team have to pay massive taxes on them. Wow. Makes your heart bleed, doesn't it? Yeah, I anyway, didn't hear that one. So drum I roll. Think, yeah, drum roll. <laughs> I think we, we both have the same person in the number one spot, and that is Fabio Quattararo. Uh I, he's there because I'm telling you straight up, Quattararo was magical on that Yamaha. He had it in places he should have never been. And finally the you can ride at a high level for an entire year. You can ride beyond the limit for three or four or five races. Quattro rode over the limit for almost 
I will call it 15 to 16 races. Yeah, I agree. Before Mm. eventually the luck ran out because you can only step over the edge so many times before you are done. And that's where I think Quattro was exhausted from what was going on. It's a very, it was a very long season, a lot of travel going to tracks. We hadn't been to in a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Time zone changes are all very difficult. He was exhausted having ridden that motorcycle to it's to the nth degree. Uh, no one else is even close to being fast on a Yamaha other than him. Sort of like the only person fast on a Honda is Marquez. Same kind of an idea. And I thought that he just deserved to be at the top of the list just for that alone. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, arguably the overtake of the season in that new chicane at the Red yeah. Bull Ring. There were a few contenders for the overtake of the season, but that was a an absolute pearl of that one. Uh, I said last week or the, in the previous show anyway that you know he brought a knife to a gunfight. I think that was pretty much the case for most of the season. Largely, you know, Banyard, as I just said earlier on, didn't really perform in that first quarter of the season, and. As you say, Jim, Quattro was just there at virtually every race. Okay, he had the blot on his copybook, you know, in the first lap incident with the Spargo in Assen. And then the team bizarrely sent him back out on a bike that looked damaged, or that might have been damaged, and he high-sided, and luckily didn't injure himself in that event, uh, in that occurrence. Uh, what else? It just kind of tailed off towards the end. I think, as you say, exhaustion probably set in, and sh- the sheer stress being the only guy with a knife at a gunfight as well. He didn't even have any sort of comrades to help him out, you know, so that must tax as well. I think Quattro is well known to be quite an emotional guy, although I think he's got that quite well under control now compared to previous seasons. I think he has some people in his corner that really help him with that side of things. But, and the Yamaha just wasn't, you know, it just wasn't on the same page really in competitiveness as the Ducatis in particular, not just the Ducatis, uh, but that bike in particular, uh, and the sheer number of Ducatis that were there as well, uh, and the, as you say, Jim, the complete absence of any other Yamahas. So all in all, I just thought he put everything on the line, race after race, made a few mistakes, but then everybody did. And, you know, given, I mean, I think the thing I wrote down was uh, three wins, uh, but a sort of unremitting top eight finishing consistency, he finished on 248, which was only 17 behind Banyard, which wasn't a big difference. And somewhere, where did I write it down? It might be in my bottom five. Oh, yeah. Um, the next Yamaha was 206 points behind. I mean, I'm, just, I'm looking at it thinking, no, I've made a mistake there. But no, that is correct, because I double-checked it. I think Morbidelli was the next Yamaha, and he had 42 points or something. So... I mean, Quattro was just on a completely different planet and you wonder what he would do on an Aprilia or if he'd been on a Suzuki and certainly on the Ducati. God knows where he'd be. But um, anyway, you know, he'll be hungry to get his title back, won't he, next year? So and let's see what happens. So, yeah, we have the same Quattro, the Quattro. If it had been an Aprilia or a Yamaha or Aprilia or a Ducati, he might have won eight to ten races. Mm. Just given how he rode. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it's interesting with Quattro, I just quickly to finish off, because, you know, he was absolutely stellar in the junior categories, in the sort of the junior Moto3 categories, and then underperformed when he arrived 
in the MotoGP paddock on the Moto3 bike. Mm-hmm. Kind of had a so-so time on the Moto2 bike. He was riding on the speed up, I think. Yes, um, he was. If you remember. Mm-hmm. And was kind of plucked from... People thought, what the hell has he got a MotoGP ride for in the Patronus Shamaha squad? You know, like people couldn't understand where that had come from. Uh, and I was one of them, to be fair, because I didn't follow his career as he was coming up through the sort of the Spanish CV and stuff. But, um, you know, he has shown what a talent he is, you know, and is he as good as, I mean, he's different, but, you know, he's clearly in the same sort of league as Marquez uh, and Rossi before, probably. I mean, there's a few guys out there that you might say that about, but Quattro, you have to show it week in, week out, don't you? And he did this year. So that's why he gets number one on the on the list for me. Yeah. I think now we sort of have Marquez and Quattrarar are kind of the two aliens for long memory people, right? Yeah, yeah. They're the only two that are at that level that's beyond. Benyaya is good. He's great. I don't think he's an alien. Bastianini? Not, not yet, yeah. Not Bastianini yet, right. There, there's an, if mm. Bastianini might be on the cusp of becoming... You know, you might see a lot of races that are between Quattararo, Bastianini, and Marquez, provided that they're all on equipment that's capable of winning a race. Yeah, yeah. It's tantalizing when, when you think of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really is. really is. All right. So, New Year's resolutions. We I did New Year's resolutions for the teams, not for the riders. So, just team resolutions. And in that, I did have an FIM resolution as well. So, I'll start. I did it alphabetically. Uh, Aprilia for their New Year's resolution, is to get a better team together that can support Aleish so that the simple mistakes that they made at the end of the year do not come out. Like the, the fuel mapping problem at Motegi. So that's my Aprilia resolution. Okay. Do you want me to give you mine just as we go yeah, through them? Yeah, we can do that, yeah. I, I think we're going to be pretty similar on a lot of sure. these. So yeah, for Aprilia racing, mine is learn from the operational difficulties and sustain a title push. Um, there you go. Uh, if and, and make sure that their riders are consistent as much as they can be. Yeah, easy said done. So second should be Ducati alphabetically, right? Yep. Uh, it's for mine is for DG and crew to come up with something new because I love the mm. mechanical wizardry of it. But <laughs> I have a I have a thing. It's it's like I want it to be something like the mask dampener that they had, you know, something like that, something very mechanical, not shape-shifting although it's all there blah blah i'll get on to shape-shifting in a minute um but yeah something new something that's different than everybody else that just pushes the technological move somewhere else which i think would be cool mm, well i've funny enough i've got a bit different i've got don't change the bike manage the riders because <laughs> <laughs> i think that'll go. be their bigger their bigger challenge next year <laughs> as we've already discussed yep all right so uh i did gas gas next although it's a ktm yeah with different colors but for them i want them to be able to win a race just so you could say a gas gas won a moto gp event which i think would be kind of cool i mean they have one they have won a race don't forget Oliver won for them the red bull ring cut right and again it's going to be tech three running the operation right so for Mm. them to get another win is more what i'm hoping than anything else i'm going to be slightly well, maybe a little bit controversial now. So, I mean, the bike is the bike that they get from KTM, okay? So, I mean, they're a custom, customer team, semi-works team, let's call them, perhaps. They have this kind of sort of smiley, chirpy face. I mean, um, Hervé Poncherol, very, you know, convivial in front of the camera. And sure, he's a great bloke to go down the pub and have a 
you know, a couple of pints with. But they've done a particularly poor job in the last two seasons of managing riders and managing their sort of image to the world. Let's not forget, they dumped Petrucci and Lecuona in the middle of a qualifying session in Austria two years ago. They had this bizarre situation going on with Raul Fernandes, who looked like a person that found £5 and lost £10 all season. And, you know, th- th- this whole thing that went on with Gardner, you know, very sort of public slanging match from the team, the rider, his dad, you know, his management, etc. all very sort of bizarre and unedifying, really. So my New Year's resolution for them would just be be better at your team and image management. They'll do what they do on the bike that they get. You know, they've got a couple of good riders in the team again. Um, but just don't make a hash of the, the rider management because they've done a really poor job, I think, in the last couple of years. And that's up against some pretty stiff competition with the Works Ducati team. Yep, that's true. Uh, alphabetically, we should be at Honda. For me... Build a 15% better bike for Mark Marquez so that he can win races. That's a good one. Yeah, I think they'd probably settle for that. Um, I think I've got the same thing. Um, well, I'm perhaps a little bit more radical. You know, for me, it looks like a root and branch change is needed to get the bike that Mark can make the difference on, uh, but not injure himself trying. Agreed on that one. Uh, KTM is next. So for me, sort out qualifying for Darren Bender so that he can win races for you because he deserves to. Yeah, I agree with that one. And I've also got mine, Jack Miller, for all he's worth in terms of his Ducati knowledge. Yeah, that's a good one. I like that one as well. Uh, Finally, the last manufacturer, Yamaha. I have find the lost engine power that you had at Marino, (laughs) at San Marino test. Where did it go? Go find it. I don't care where you go. (laughs) Find the right engine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then get Franco bloody Morbidelli up to speed. (laughs) Yep. And then I have one last one for the FIM. Somewhat controversial here. I give you, I would wish for you to ban all shape-shifting devices on the bikes. And I'll give you aerodynamics and trade i'm with you on that one i mean obviously the front shapeshifter is gone not the whole shot but that one i'm okay with the whole shot i, yeah, I don't, the, the, no, I don't I really don't have a big issue. deal i don't have a big deal with the whole shot ish device because it, it's used once to start the bike and that's it yeah. but when yeah. the bikes are collapsing out of each of the turns and, and you you have to have that mechanical system on the bike so that you can go fast <sighs> it's that thing that I hate, but I love, but I hate, I love mm. to hate it. Right. Cause the engineer in me says that's really super cool. And as it's been pointed out many times by all of you who ride into us, the idea is to build a motorcycle to go fast around a track. And if that is within the limits of the rules, then you do it. And I wholeheartedly agree with you, but I think that the sport is getting to a point where it's going to start facing some serious challenges. And they think that they can fix that by putting a sprint race in. Now, I'm going to try to be an open mind and see the sprint races, and they may be some of the most fantastic racing we see all year is going to be these quick races. I mean, good grief, Marquez on a tire that's going to last 10 laps and all he's got to do <laughs> is just, okay, that's tantalizingly cool to me, right? Um, you get points for it, a chance to the championship. All of this is going to be new and different. So they've wanted to do something. But I think that they've kind of pigeonholed themselves 
into having problems that they're going to have that F1 has where you couldn't pass anybody. And, and we have so many problems with front tire pressure, but they're putting a tire pressure system in this coming year that they're going to monitor it live the whole time. So you can't cheat, if you will, where a lot of people were starting with under pressured tires and letting them build up the pressure with the heat. And yeah. all the aerodynamic forces that are pushing on those tires are causing a problem. Michelin's got a new tire that they think will solve that problem, but it's delayed again because they're not testing it Yeah, because of it. And I don't want to see us go down that Formula One road, that path of, well, we got to train the cars and they can't go by. So now we're going to do something crazy, like put DRS on it, open it up and let one car go flying by the other car because we think that's passing and racing. And, you know, I'm okay with the aerodynamics. They look weird. Okay. But the shape-shifting can go away, and no one's really going to care. Because if you watched Australia this year at Phillip Island, a track that's fast and flowing, so they really weren't using the shape-shifting. Yeah. Oh, it was a great battle. One for the ages, right? So we always it talk was. about the mm-hmm. race for the ages, the race for the ages. I think you could have a lot more of those if you got rid of the shape-shifters. Or I'd go one step further, perhaps, Jim, and say, look, if we've got to have this sort of stuff, then at least make it road relatable. So just let them run auto suspension systems, because at least, you know, that is transferable to road bikes. I mean, no road bike is going to have a mechanical shape shifting system on it. So because it's a, it's too complicated, you know, and it obviously would be dangerous on a road bike if it wasn't maintained. So if you've got to have it, make it yeah relatable. I, I honestly thought you were going to get back on the old um, starter motors no, for, no, your, no. for your FIM wish. No. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm with you on the shapeshifters. I hate the damn things, you know, for, just purely on aesthetic grounds. I mean, when a bike comes out of a corner and it squats down like that, I just think it looks horrid. Um, so I object to them on many different levels. But And as you say, it does for me, it doesn't make the racing any better. It makes the bikes a bit more dangerous. It's marginalising some of the tracks that we love in terms of safety. So add all these things up together. Just a quick thing on the sprint races for next year. I was listening to something the other day and a guy had written in and I've forgotten most of them, but he was coming up with some really brilliant ideas as to other things that they could do in and around the sprint format to make things good. And one of the suggestions was allow um, each team to run like a reserve rider on a third bike. They wouldn't score points necessarily, but give some of the other guys that might want to come in or come up to the series you know, the odd weekend where they could get into a, a short race. Okay, or hold a, on. Or run a development tire. Okay, You know, okay, to hold get on. some testing mileage. Anyway, yeah, go on. All right, before I lose this, because this is now an open... Okay, how about this? You get a third bike, and you could put somebody on there that you want, i.e. Pedro Acosta shows up on a KTM MotoGP bike for a sprint race. I'm for yeah. that. I'm yeah. for that. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit like an F1 where they run the reserve uh, drivers sometimes in the free practice sessions. You know, so a few other things that could generate some interest. I mean, one of the big problems, I think, in MotoGP, and again, I harken back to Silverstone, was, you know, a couple of the key guys that introduced a bit of needle into proceedings weren't there. And you really do need that. And, I, you know, I can't get away from the feeling. And this is where I think World Superbike has been really good the last couple of seasons, because a few of those guys do not like each other very much, and they show it. Now, I'm not suggesting that they're riding dangerously or doing things that are completely out of order, but there is some needle there. And it just, 
adds to the narrative and it really engages fans. And I think MotoGP in particular is missing a trick on this. Now, I'm not suggesting that you can just go up, have a quiet word in Banyar's ear and say, oh, can you can you be a complete bastard for the rest of the season? Because that's not how things are. But we are missing that kind of panto villain kind yeah, of character. the villain. Particularly right. when Mark Marquez is not around, because he oh, tends yeah. to be the guy that does that at the moment. And we could do with a couple more people like that. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. We need to introduce a few more personalities, and let's be honest, Acosta is an arrogant little so and so. Yes, he a, is. <laughs> there's a few others, well, quite a lot of others. I mean, it's part of the package, isn't it? That makes right. people kind of alpha competitors uh, and and seriously successful. So I think the more we can bring some of these personalities into the top part of the sport, because let's be honest, if you want to go after the Netflix crowd. You know, they are not watching F3 races and F4 races. They're watching Formula One. And it's the same in our sport. You know, people like us will watch every session of every category that there is. But if you want to catch the casual viewer, they ain't going to be sitting through bloody pre-practice one of the Moto3, even though there are some very, very interesting people in that category and Moto2 as well. So if we could find a way to get them into the MotoGP spotlight a bit earlier, I think that would be, you know, a totally good thing. It gives them some seasoning, right? Without, exactly. Without harming anything, right? Let teams run some development parts that don't count for points, constructors, team championships, or anything like that. Allow Michelin to run this development tire that is now delayed to what, 2025 or something? Because something. none of the teams have any test time to, to give it, you know, track uh, mileage. So let somebody else do it in a race. Yeah. I Yeah. I mean, I don't know why why you couldn't. It's not the same, but I'm I'm gonna say this. Get us get a super bike, a world super bike, or or take a street bike, a, you know, a, a thousand cc Honda or whatever, and let Michelin have somebody who has some uh, prior MotoGP experience on there. Um, nothing jumps off my mind except for Pedrosa, who's doing testing for KTM. But some, Petrucci, some, okay, Petrucci, perfect. Um, to have them on a world superbike with Michelin's, right? So they could kind of get some development on it, say, hey, we got this. And then if you could put them in that sprint race format and let an Acosta, uh, an Arenas maybe, or your reserve rider, Drosa on the KTM if you want it, right? Mm-hmm. And put them in there with with it. And so it gets some race time and gets into a, you know, more than one bike pounding around a racetrack and hey here's what happens when you have a draft here's what's happening when you have aerodynamics around you and wake of everybody else and etc of all that it's a great idea it's perfect it's brilliant really but the the bitch will be that it's what happens if the reserve rider if you will knocks off a quattro or a marquez or whatever they're not going to like that then the teams are going to be like well we can't afford a third bike Right. Well, you got four of them sitting in the paddock, <laughs> fully mm. built. And I guarantee you, there's a fifth or a sixth one in the trailer that could easily be put together. I don't know. It's not like you got to haul another bike over there, but they'll complain about the money, right? Yeah. And I and I think that's that's kind of with my shape shifting wish, is like the money that's got to be spent for these teams. And we're, we're there. There isn't really a big Fortune 500 sponsor. No, well, I suppose, I, I suppose Repsol and Monster are the two big, big sponsors. Red Bull, I suppose, but 
but yeah um it, it's not attracting anywhere near the sort of funding that say formula one is and you might say well it's only bike racing but it's still moto gp i mean it's the pinnacle so i'd yeah. argue that there's not a there, there's not big fortune 500 in formula one right i i would argue that i would argue that if you look at it, there's a lot more stickers across a formula one car you have that area that signage right that you can sell mm. yeah but they're little they're little sponsors it's it's now not one big sponsor like the cigarette brands were. Yeah. Well, it's a sign of the times, Jim, isn't Correct. It as well. I, yeah. I, right. But the thing of it is, is, I don't, I don't understand how you cannot sell the technology of a formula one car or a Moto GP team to, to a computer company, to, to an Oracle. To, now Red Bull has Oracle, please. Okay. I know, mm. but to, to a bike team or, whatever other electronic thing there is other than an energy drink right because they're going to unfortunately i think energy drinks are going to become the new cigarettes right they're going to start to be taxed they're going to start to be this is harmful you're going to get all that that's going to happen soon somebody's going to say we you have too many 12 year olds drinking a monster or red bull or whatever and it's all going to be taken away from us again. Then where are we going to be? Yeah, you know. I mean, I, I've I've gone to a couple of different. Uh, how, what's the word I want here? Uh, uh, it's not an expo, but a you have a company that you deal with all the time. They put on a big event. And they bring everybody in from around the world and a conference. Yeah, like a, like a workshop or conference. Yes, or whatever, big yeah. conference. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to a couple of big conferences where I've actually sat there and have been privileged to see this one lady. I cannot think of her name, but she does a presentation about Red Bull using, they happen to use the exact same software that I run at work and they use the, and they have all that same stuff and they make this case about how they use it. And it's fascinating. It's a well thought out way to involve people in that. And I'm like, okay, but you can't, what you did for them why can't you do that for Coca-Cola or Pepsi or Microsoft or, you know, mm. something else? Because you could make that same, hey, we were, you know, because they're relying upon these technologies to develop their race car or whatever, right? So it just seems odd to me that we can't seem to get an, a big name sponsor thing that isn't just a niche. You you made the comment, we've, come this, we've had this argument, Suzuki had their own oil brand on their bikes, why why can't you find why can't you go back and get pepsi again mm. yeah right. exactly yeah right yeah, you yeah. know i mean yeah. do you not want to is it too niche yeah but the flip side of that discussion though for me jim is that and this is definitely a discussion for another day it comes into the whole governance of the sport and particularly the commercial governance of the sport you know you have this kind of almost like a sort of a family kind of uh, mafia that's running the sport now uh, well, obviously a family. Um, the problem with that kind of a system is that everybody agrees with everybody else and nobody's ever going to chuck a stone over the fence, you know, and say, actually, no, I think this is wrong. We're going in the wrong direction. So, I, you know, I applaud the sprint race in a way from a spectating point of view. I, I take a sprint race over FP4 every day of the week. Oh, yeah. I agree. Because you know, FP4 is, is a bit of a yawn fest, to be honest, or has was tended to be that way for me. So I t- take the sprint race. Now, it's, that's a wholeheartedly different discussion if you're a team or particularly a rider, the sprint race. That that throws a whole curveball in that we don't know how that's going to play out. Um, so I applaud Dorna 
for thinking out of the box. Although I'm surprised they didn't say we're going to do it, you know, in six races this season and see how it goes. Yeah, they just went all in. You know, all in. I just think they're missing a massive trick with the personalities. And this is where, say, Drive to Survive in Formula One has been such a smash hit for F1 and Liberty Media. And if you get that sort of coverage, then the sponsors come to you. That's kind of my take on this, is why can't Suzuki get one? It's why weren't sponsors saying, we need to be in MotoGP, which team will have us? Yes. So, and I and I, I think the commercial governance and sort of some of the sporting regulation governance, like shapeshifters, for example, potentially turn people off. Mm-hmm. But it's a discuss- big discussion probably for another day, I guess. But I'm wondering if they've figured out what you said, that it has to be the personalities. Because there is that new series with Mark Marquez. That's, well, the, yes, they are trying. Yeah, I guess they're trying. And I don't I don't know when it starts or if it's in the new MotoGP Unlimited Amazon series or if it's its own subset of that on Amazon. Mm. I don't, I do not know. But the cool part about it was it was Marquez talking. He says, I'm a bastard when I'm on the bike. Yeah. The villain, right? Yeah. So there's this personality and you know, maybe maybe then people will come. Maybe the sponsors do come at that point. I, I don't know, but I, I mean, stealing slightly Simon Patterson's thunder. Um, not a guy I agree with on a lot of things that he puts out on tweets, but and I listen to the podcast that he's involved with, and you know, he was making a very strong case that at Valencia, Banyaya's World Championship title success was very much overshadowed by the fact that Rossi was there, and just the sheer degree to which Dorna is still so heavily reliant on the Rossi brand and the Rossi image. And, you know, he's been retired for a year and he's been off car racing most of the year. You know, he's not really that interested in going to the races. He was really only at Valencia because of Banyar, you know, was almost a dead cert to wrap up the title. First VR46 guy to do so. So that was understandable. But, yeah, they're too reliant on one or two people and they need to get more public facing of the Acostas and, you know, the Onchus. You know, some of these guys are really interesting. They're, they're fiery and they, you know, there's there's more sort of grit and shenanigans going going on down in Moto3 and Moto2 than you ever see in MotoGP. And, you know, we need to tap into a bit of that. So, you know, the personalities in this day and age of social media and all the rest of it, although you can argue it's Pandora's box and it's, you know, horrid a lot of it, and it is, but that's the world that we live in. So I think, you know, they should be making a lot more of it, in my opinion. Jim, can I just very quickly go through the, the wooden spoon, the bottom five? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. get a, There you go, people at the bottom. Richard Drought now gives us his... Bottom five MotoGP riders as a Christmas bonus to everybody. We we did finish the New Year's resolutions for the manufacturers, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the FIA was my bonus for them was FIA ban the shapeshifter. So right, we're good. Okay, so I'm going to run uh, five down to one. So five being the least worst, and one being the absolute bottom of the pile, as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, there's quite a few riders in the middle that have not featured in the top ten and aren't in the bottom five. And again, people can take issue with this. So, um, in at number five. Raul Fernandez finished 22nd in the championship, was pretty much absent without leave all season. I mean, he did just shade it in the points in front of Gardner, but, you know, you might say, well, that's not saying a great deal. Um, We know that KTM wasn't a particularly easy bike uh, this year in particular, but this was the guy that wowed us all on the Moto2 bike the previous year. And we thought was you know almost like the next coming of Christ, you know, <laughs> and then disappeared without trace on a bike and a team that he didn't want to be in, and he did nothing really to indicate to anybody, and certainly not to me, from what I saw, that he was going to do anything really to try and make 
what was for him a bad situation any better? So very, 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 very disappointing. And he sure as hell had better have a good season on that RNF Aprilia next year. Otherwise, you know, the guy that we all thought was going to be a seven-time world champion in MotoGP might be in World Superbike in 2024 if he's not careful. Or even World Super Sport, you know. Not that that's a bad place to be. So Raul Fernandez, um, a divisive figure and a person that I've moaned about a fair bit because of the way he and his entourage behave uh, in fifth. Fourth for me, and Jim, you're going to look like this. I've got Jack Miller. Hmm. Okay. Japan weekend aside, or Japan race aside, where it was like, where did this guy come from? Where's this been all year? You know, he just was imperious. And it's like, why isn't he doing that sort of more consistently? That was why he was in the Works Ducati squad, after all. Yeah. Um. So for me, just kind of being a bit harsh to say it this way, but you know, one win is not good enough on a title winning bike when you compare where he was compared to Banyaya. You know, everybody loves Jack Miller. I love him. He, he is a great personality. And again, you know, he is a guy that really cuts through social media, for example. You see a lot of him in sort of non-directly bike racing action sort of uh, media. So that's good. Um, but he, uh, you know, again, KTM... Draw is out. Draw is out. Number three, uh, in 19th place and very, very distant from his teammate, as we've just discussed, was Franco Morbidelli. The question for me is, is he still badly injured with that knee? I don't uh, know. It's... I mean, this is the guy that finished runner-up in 2020. 2020. 2020, to me, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, Just a total kind of head-scratcher for me. As I said, second Yamaha in the standings, it's true, but in 19th place uh, and a full, what did I say, 206 points behind Fabio Quattararo. So that's an absolute shocker. Uh, in second place, uh, not quite winning the uh, the rainbow-coloured wooden spoon, is Joanne Mir. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, Mir's had a terrible season. I... Desar- a, a total disaster for the 2020 world champion. But the 2020 world champion. Looks it like ain't going to be any better at Honda. Sorry. I, I Well, no, I agree. I think he and Rins, as we discussed last time out, I think are going to find life particularly um, debilitating. On, um, yeah, or brutal even on that bike. Um, he did have a nasty crash in Austria, as we said. He broke his ankle quite badly and he did miss probably three or four rounds, I think. Um, so that didn't help. But he started the season sort of okay. But from round five, I was looking at through the sort of the season's results. From round five onwards, he was pretty much a disaster. Whether that was down to the the withdrawal news, uh, whether it was down to his teammate having a better year as the year went on, who knows? But much was expected of both Suzuki's. One delivered and the other categorically did not. So Mir in second place for me. And Jim, do you want to hazard a guess who I've got in the number one frustrating, disappointing? Are you going to go with Remy Gardner? Nope. Okay. Hold on. Nope. Let me think. I'm trying to think. Of who else could you have that would be in there that'd be frustrating? Because I can hear somebody uh... shouting in Israel. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Vinales. Yeah, <laughs> the enigma that is Maverick Vinales. 
I mean, for me, he's had time to adapt to that bike. He's been on it for over a season now. Um, perennially fast in practice, but utterly crap in races. Uh, I mean, okay, third in the Netherlands, second in Silverstone shortly thereafter. We thought, oh, hello, there's the breakthrough come. He almost won the race in Silverstone to give him credit. Um, and then he was third race or two later in San Marino. But other than that, I mean, just wildly inconsistent. Um, not helped by the team losing the plot towards the end of the year, as we said. But, you know, Alesh needs to be pushed. Maverick is being pushed and isn't, you know, by Alesh and isn't responding in the way that he should do. We know he's fast. I mean, guys, that, that guy is really fast. I mean, think of some of the performances that he had on the Yamaha and particularly the performances that he had on the early Suzuki when it came out, when they came back into MotoGP. He should never have left Suzuki. He'd be probably a double world champion by now, at least, I think. Um, so, yeah, and he needs to be looking over his shoulder at Miguel Oliveira, I believe, for 2024. Because if Oliveira has anywhere near the season I think he's going to have on that fight next year, then I would say that both the Spargro, captain of the team or not, and definitely Vinales, you know, could, could be under a bit of pressure there. Yep. Good choice. So, that was my bottom five. Harsh, but, you know, again, unsubjective, but say it as you see it. Yeah. All right. Happy think... to have people write in and tell us that we're wrong or that they people have a different opinion. Yep. I think we should wrap this up. Yeah. Done. So, you know, where we think everybody should be from MotoGP and our New Year's resolutions for each of the teams in MotoGP. Tell us what you think. Write us, motopod at motopodcast.com. Goes to all the hosts, past and present. And so sometimes we get people chiming in who have not said anything there. Uh, I would like to say happy holidays to all the listeners, because this will be the last show before we get through the holidays and beginning of New Year. So we'll probably pick up the New Year with Mo, who our uh, top tens in Moto Two and Moto Three. Hopefully there'll be some news from the world of Moto GP because there's only like about eighty five days before the first race. Shockingly, <laughs> not much. Not so much. Not much time to sun yourself on the beach these days. No, it is not. It's almost a 24-7 operation and uh, whatnot. So that's it from here. And again, happy holidays to everybody. Ride safe and... Merry Christmas, everybody, and Happy New Year. We'll catch up with you on the other side of uh, 2023. Cheers. Cheers, everyone.